Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon, and today I'm so excited to have Thomas Heghammer on the show to talk about his new book, The Caravan, Abdullah Azam and the Rise of Global Jihad. This is a fantastic book. It is so detailed. We'll get into as much as we can in the show, but I highly recommend listeners reading it themselves if you're interested in the subject or you're just interested in going through the life of this person that in our field is a huge name, which we'll also get into later. So first of all, thank you so much for coming back on the Loopcast, Thomas. I think last time we had you on was a number of years ago. So welcome back. Thank you so much, Chelsea. So it's a pleasure. And also, welcome back all the way from Norway. So <laughs> we're doing the long distance thing over here. For our listeners who might not know of Thomas, he is a senior research fellow at the Norwegian Defense Research Establishment, and he's also an adjunct professor of political science at the University of Oslo in Norway. He has a number of previous books, including Al-Qaeda in its own words, Jihad in Saudi Arabia, The Mecca Rebellion, Saudi Arabia in Transition, and Jihadi Culture, the Art and Social Practices of Militant Islamist, which is also another one of my favorite books. So he has, as you can tell, so much knowledge on this topic, and I'm very excited to get into detail about your new book, The Caravan. Why don't we start off with telling us a little bit about your adventures in coming up with this book and writing this book before we actually get into the life and work of Azam. So what firstly motivated you to write this book? Well, it was that I had um, unique access to um, people who knew Azam well. Um, in the, I, I start the book uh, with an anecdote from 2006 when I was in the family home of Abdullah Azam. Uh, I had come there to interview Hudhaifa Azam, his son, uh, for my PhD project, which was about uh, jihadism in Saudi Arabia. And we're sitting there talking, and he says, uh, Thomas, uh, wait a second, I'm just going to go and get something uh, for you to see. And he goes out and comes back, and he has this um, old jacket on a on a hanger. Uh, and he brings it over to me, and he says, uh, um smell this can, can you smell anything um and i said no uh I, could, I couldn't really smell anything other than the kind of old jacket but what he wanted me to smell was musk uh, which is what islamists believe that um, martyrs smell of um and the jacket was this was the very jacket that abdullah azam had worn on the day that he was killed in 1989 so that's kind of to illustrate um, that I realized uh, at this point that I was, you know, I had this unique accent. I was close to the, you know, the, the Azam family. Um, and so I had this opportunity to draw a detailed portrait of, of this man, um, whom I already knew was very significant in the history of the jihadi movement. So, and there was no book about him. Uh, so I figured... I would write it. Well, I'm firstly glad you did, because like I said, it's it's such a fantastic piece of work. Um, how many years did it take you to do the research for this book? 
Uh, it took me a, a long time. I, a friend of mine said recently, well, it's so good to see the book. I knew it when it was little. <laughs> um, I, I, I probably spent 12, 12 years on it uh, altogether. From I started in sort of late 2007, and then I kind of finished it uh, last year. So yeah, that's a that's a big chunk of my my life and my my career. So it just took took a very long time, partly because um, uh, there were so many sources to go through, uh, and um, so many primary sources. I just kept discovering new kind of uh, collections of documents, and um, uh, and I've, I reached a point where I kind of I had, I had put in so much work to go through the others, you know, other sources already. I felt well, then I have to kind of do it fully. I have to do it, you know, go, I have to go all the way. And then so it just took took a long time. And then of course along the way too, I was distracted by other things like the the Arab Spring and the war in Syria, which kind of. Uh, given the job that I have kind of forced me to do some other things along the way. So, um, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's been a, quite a, quite a significant project. During this project, and I'm going to call it an adventure because it was 12 years of your life, at least, where did it take you travel wise for the actual research? Because I know you mentioned it in the book a bit, but for our listeners, I'd love to hear about some of the places it took you. Sure. So I tried to go to all of the places where Azam lived, uh, which means to the West Bank in Palestine. I went to his home village where he, where he grew up. Um, it means Amman, where he lived for much of the 70s. It means to Saudi Arabia, where he lived for a year in 1980 to 81, and where he also visited uh, you know, almost every year. Uh, for much of his adult life, um, it meant going to to Pakistan, to Peshawar and Islamabad, where he lived in the in the in the 80s during the Afghan jihad. Um, it meant going to to London uh, to speak with um, other members of his family and kind of and former acquaintances of his. Uh, it meant going to the U.S. to speak with. Um, uh, former government uh, people who had been deployed in in Pakistan in the 80s, um, and who could who could tell me about the American perspective on the war, um, and it meant going to Afghanistan itself. Um, in fact, perhaps the highlight of the entire uh, kind of field work um, uh, was. Uh, the trip I made to Afghanistan in 2018 together with Abdullah Anas, uh, who is the son-in-law of Abdullah Azam. Uh, and he uh, was very kind and generous to accompany, accompany me there and to introduce me to Abdurrab Rasul Sayyaf, who is a sort of a grand old man of Afghan politics and who was Abdullah Azam's kind of closest interlocutor on the Afghan Mujahideen side um, and who's kind of a legend in his own right. So um, I had the, 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 the privilege uh, to, 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 to meet a lot of very interesting people along the way. And that, I think, perhaps was the, really the, the, the best part of the, the book writing process. 
So looking at Azam's life, why don't you give us an overview of who he is and how he became involved in the Islamist movement, just for those that might not know enough about Azam? Sure. So, so Azam is famous for having mobilized the Afghan Arabs, the, the, the foreign fighters, to the 1980s war in Afghanistan. He's, he's seen as the father of the Afghan Arab movement because he is the one who led the recruitment effort. He's the one who wrote the most influential books telling people to go and fight there. He's the one who established the organization, the Services Bureau, that facilitated uh, foreign fighter travel. Um, so that's kind of, that's what he's famous for. Um, but the Afghan Jihad came only at the tail end of his career. He had a, he had a long uh, life and career before then. Um, and uh, he was a Palestinian uh, and a religious scholar. He was born in 1941 in, uh, in Palestine, in a village near Jenin, on the northern part of the West Bank. Um, and uh, he grew up there in Palestine, and he, sort of, he, so he witnessed the 1948 um, uh, Arab-Israeli war. He, and then he also uh, witnessed the 1967 Six-Day War, um, and but, but during the '67 war, he fled Palestine um, uh, because he didn't want to live under Israeli occupation. He actually walked on foot uh, from Je the Jenin area to Amman in the middle of the Six Day War, and he would he would never come back. Uh, so from from 1967 onward. He is this uh, sort of vagabond. He's a, re a refugee and a kind of a, he's living kind of at the mercy of whichever kind of regime that's hosting him. And I, I think this kind of uprooted existence, this sort of, this sort of vagabond existence is important for understanding uh, him. Um, because he, 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 later in the 80s, you know, he becomes the man who kind of internationalizes the jihadi movement he more than anyone at the time spoke about the need for kind of transnational uh solidarity and the need to fight in each other's wars etc so he had this kind of transnationalist pan-islamic outlook and i think that outlook came in part from his own kind of uh, uh ruthlessness and the fact that he kind of i think he saw himself as sort of a, a citizen of the islamic world more than as the citizen of any one country. So, so I've already mentioned kind of two aspects of his life that are important to understanding his him, and one is that Palestinian background, and the other is that kind of uh, vagabond uh, dimension. Then there is the Muslim Brotherhood uh, dimension. He joined the Muslim Brotherhood very young, when he was just 12 years old, he was recruited by a school teacher and he was quite active in the organization in his teenage years. And in fact, he would stay um, with, the, with the Brotherhood throughout his life, although 
towards the end of his life, he became more of kind of an independent uh, figure. Uh, but for most of his adult life, he was an active member of the Brotherhood and kind of part of the organization. So he, uh, he so he's, and we have to remember that in the 60s and, and early 70s, Islamists were uh, not sort of the dominant political force in the way that they became from the late 80s onward. Uh, at that time, leftists were uh, in a kind of majority, and is- Islamists were were a minority. Um, and uh, so he, he he was part of this kind of small and beleaguered movement um, in his teens and twenties. Um, that was that was always sort of the the little brother, the, the small sibling of the leftists, and. Uh, he, um, uh, he he found himself on a number of occasions in sort of in conflict with Palestinian leftists, and he was very angry with them. He, he hated leftists because he saw them as having kind of hijacked the Palestinian cause. He thought that the Palestinian cause should be led by Islamists and not by secularists. So, um, so he saw the leftists as, as sort of a big enemy. Um, and then um, uh, to to go back a little bit to the 1967 juncture when he becomes this vagabond, um, uh, he, he he then fr- from that point he he he, he becomes um, he, he starts his kind of religious education to become uh, a sort of a classically trained Islamic scholar, uh, which is another sort of important dimension to his to his. His life and, and, and personality. Um, in um, he, he studies Islamic law first in Damascus and then at Al Azhar for his masters. And then he in the, in seventy one he go he goes to Cairo and gets a PhD in Islamic law at the University of Al Azhar, which is the perhaps the most prestigious. Um, uh, university for Islamic studies in the Muslim world at the time. Um, so he comes out of out of Al Azhar in 1973. You know, very you know high, highly kind of highly trained uh, scholar, and he, he then um, moves to Jord- back to Jordan uh and teaches islamic law at the university there for several years it was for the rest of the 70s basically and then in 1980 he is basically thrown out of jordan because the the regime sees him as an agitator and as a kind of a, a person who kind of is 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 having a politicizing and a radicalizing effect on youth especially his students at, at Jordan University. So they fire him and, and encourage him to leave. Um, and then he goes to Saudi Arabia, teaches there for a year. Um, um, but uh, he doesn't like it very much there and he's kind of looking for somewhere more exciting to go and he, he ends up in in Pakistan uh, where 
he gets another job as a lecturer. But the real reason he goes to Pakistan is so he can, he can be close to the Afghanistan war, to the Afghan jihad. And it's sort of from there on that his, his, his Afghanistan, his sort of famous Afghanistan period starts. So just to, you know, cut a long story short, he's sort of this, he's a Palestinian who became you know, this vagabond and then after a series of stations ends up in the Afghan jihad. In your opinion, this period of exclusion or being a vagabond, how much do you think that influenced and impact, impacted Azam's life for his future endeavors? I think uh, very much. Uh, if we um, if we do some counterfactual thinking, and look, for example, at 1967, I think if if the 67 war hadn't happened and he hadn't sort of left the West Bank, I don't think, I think he would have basically stayed in his village or or in Janine um, because he he was quite attached to his family from what we can tell. Um, And in 1965, he got married, uh, had children, so he had he was he had sort of reasons to to stay, um, and also we know that in the early sixties when he studied Islamic law as an undergraduate at the University of Damascus, he wasn't actually based in Damascus. He chose to stay in his home village and study by distance learning. So, um, uh, and this probably had to do with his economic his economic situation that he couldn't afford to sort of be a full time student. In Damascus, he had to, you know, be in his uh, home area, and I think he he, he was he, he had a, he was teaching, and so he had an income income there. So is, this is just to say that um, if he if the sixty seven war hadn't hadn't sort of pulled him out of Palestine, he would probably have grown old there and um, perhaps become a a teacher or perhaps a judge, you know, should he, should he have gone down the academic route? He might have ended up sort of a judge or something in the Jinnin area. Um, he probably would have joined Hamas or something later on. Um, um, but I don't think he would have left Palestine to go fight in in, in Afghanistan directly. Uh, that I, I doubt. Similarly, if we look at 1980, when he was expelled from Jordan, um I think if if the regime hadn't done that, he would have stayed in Jordan uh, because he he was by then getting older. He was then you know almost he was almost forty years old. He had uh, six children. He had a job with a decent salary. He had like he was an established name at the university. He had a lot to lose by leaving Jordan. So I don't think that was his sort of. I don't think he would, he would he would have left without that kind of push from the government. So and and so you know take that away, uh, he would have he, he might have just stayed in in Amman um, teaching. He probably would have become in, perhaps involved in the Afghan jihad from Amman in some capacity, um, but but not uh, he probably wouldn't have invested himself kind of as fully as he did. Uh, uh, after moving there, so this, I think the, you know, there's some just there's some very concrete and specific scenarios that show that you know 
if, if it wasn't for these kind of events of ex exclusion, he wouldn't have come to play the the role that he that, that he did. Um, yeah. Before we get into the time of the Afghan Jihad, I wanted to talk a little bit about Azam's influence as a scholar in the greater Islamic or we could say extreme Islamic movement, because as you said, he, he did attend Al-Azhar and he was at heart very much a scholar from what I read in your book. So I want to talk about that side of him a bit since his engagement in the foreign fighter movement in Afghanistan is so highlighted in the field where this part of his life and his legacy is overlooked. Right. You mean his, like his pre-Afghanistan ideas? Yes. yes. Right. Well, the thing to bear in mind with the Zam is that before Afghanistan, he was a member of the Muslim Brotherhood and that was quite important because the Brotherhood was a very disciplined organization, um, very hierarchical, um, and uh, you know, people generally kind of uh, impl implicitly or explicitly told to kind of toe the party line on, on many things. And uh, basically, Azam was not, he did not stand out from other Muslim Brotherhood clerics or ideologues in the 1970s. Um, he wrote a number of books, um, but n n none of them really is, uh, were kind of as kind of unorthodox or, or, or different from others as the books that he would write later in Afghanistan. So the things that he was interested in in the 70s was first um, edu Islamic education, sort of the need for youth to have an Islamic education. Um, it was also the leftists, kind of, the, the, kind of this cultural fight with the leftists. Um, he wrote notably a book called uh, The Red Cancer, which kind of says everything you need to know about his view on, on leftists. Um, um, and uh, he also... Um, uh, and, and, in the, and in these books, he, he you know, he had political views... Um, Obviously, you know, deeply attached to the Palestinian cause, didn't you know? Really rejected the, uh, you know, the rejected completely, you know, the legitimacy of the state of Israel. Um, he saw kind of Western, um, uh, Western civilization as uh, as uh, as as partly a threat and partly as uh, kind of. Corrupt and morally degenerate, uh, and something that should be kind of kept out of the, the Muslim world, um, and uh, and so on. So we had a number of kind of political views, but none of these views were uh, kind of unique to him. Um, mo most of the things that he says in the seventies, you will also find other Muslim Brotherhood clerics saying. Uh, so he, he was. Bottom line is that he was a kind of a. He was a fairly mainstream Muslim Brotherhood ideologue um, before going to Afghanistan. Although he was on the hardline end of the Brotherhood, he was, some people often, you know, uh, distinguish between sort of the the hawks or the doves in, in the Brotherhood, or the the, the Kutbists or the the Banaists. Um, 
where the where the hawks or the other or the cut bits are kind of hardliners and, and the the doves and the banais or the other softies. But and Azam was almost certainly and Azam was certainly on the on the hardline end of the spectrum. But he was within uh, uh, the, the 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 regular kind of Muslim Brotherhood field. And also, he he was fairly kind of well known. Um, Across the region before Afghanistan, his book *The Red Cancer* and, and his other books were distributed and read acro- across the region, and he found himself invited to conferences uh, internationally. That's what, that's how he found himself in in America already in 1978, or in Italy in 1979. Uh, basically, attending these Islamic conferences, international Islamic conferences. So he was a fairly um, Big figure, although um, uh, not a su- not a kind of yet a superstar. Um, um, so um, uh, the, it's, it's really the Afghanistan war that makes him stand out. If, without his role and writings uh, pertaining to Afghanistan, he probably would have been f- more or less forgotten. Uh, I think because he just wasn't original enough. So now coming to Afghanistan and the Afghan Arabs and the war there, what part did local oppression play in this historic event? And why don't we talk about what this period looked like for the event in general and then in Azam's life? Um, right. So you mean the like the the exclusion in the nineteen seventies and sixties? Yes. Right. Yeah. So that's sort of the that's perhaps the the main argument of the the book where, I, where I'm saying that jihadism went global because of local repression and um, the background for the for, for that is of course that uh, the jihadi movement internationalizes in the eighties. You had militant Islamists before, in the 50s, 60s, uh, 70s, but they were focused on domestic politics. Most of them were trying to topple uh, their respective governments. And you know, while they would occasionally mention international issues like Palestine, they were not. It was not a main concern for them. So, whereas in the 80s. And from the 80s onwards, you, you, you get this transnational jihadi movement that is mainly interested in international kind of conflicts. So they travel around as foreign fighters and they later, you know, carry out international terrorist attacks, etc. So you have this sort of big shift from local to global in the 1980s. And what I'm saying is that, is that it's we have to look to, you know, the Middle East and... Arab politics to understand that shift, and um, the, the 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 basically what I argue is that is that um, the the Islamists in the fifties and sixties and seventies they were kind of systematically excluded from their respective political. Uh, spheres. They were they were often seen as kind of enemies of the state. And they found their organizations 
um, either banned or under kind of severe restric restrictions. Many people were um, uh, you know, arrested at various times, and, 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 and there were, and then you had people fleeing their, you know, basically political repression at home. Typically, you had waves of, of kind of political uh, refugees from Egypt and from Syria in particular, where you had very repressive and secular regimes um, and where the, you know, brotherhood, uh, where the brotherhood was not very welcome. And so you had a lot of those people kind of fleeing their respective countries and many of them, and you know, found refuge in Saudi Arabia in the, in the 60s and 70s. So, um, and, and then what some of these, these sort of, um, uh, sort of rootless Islamists did was to start talking more about international issues. Um, uh, and they became what I call you know, pan-Islamists. They, they developed a discourse that said that um, the, the mo all Muslims are one people, uh, that you know, this people, which they call the Ummah, the Ummah is under attack, and that Muslims need to stand together and engage in, you know, show more solidarity towards one another to kind of mutually defend against all these outside threats. And um, this happens before the Afghanistan war. This happens in the mid to late 1970s. You get a pretty active community of so-called pan-Islamists um, in, in the Middle East, but mainly in Saudi Arabia. And... Um, the um, and and the 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 reason you get this community, I think, is because of this this kind of domestic political repression. These, these activists are they're talking about international issues because they, that's what they can get away with. This is, the governments are less concerned with Islamists to talk about faraway conflicts or you know or humanitarian crises in India or development development problems in Muslim countries in Africa things like that um, so when Islamists talk about those sorts of issues the regimes leave them alone um, and so this pan-islamist community grows um, and it also gets money and resources from the Saudi government which is keen to sort of um, cast itself as the sort of defender of Islam and so on. Um, so in the late 70s, you have this pan-Islamist community that's quite active and well-resourced. Um, and when, so that when the Afghanistan war breaks, or when, this, when the Russians invade Afghanistan in 79 and you get this Afghan jihad, the first people on the ground are these pan-Islamists. Um, and they're not coming as foreign fighters, but as uh, NGO workers. Um, because <clears throat> the, the early sort of pan-Islamists were not militants. They, they were advocating solidarity work of a non-violent kind. They, 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 they basically in the form of humanitarian aid and, and cultural centers and that kind of thing. But they are the first ones who took sort of get involved um, with the Afghan jihad, typically help helping Afghan refugees and sort of um, you know uh, giving money to the Afghan mujahideen and so on. Um, and 
but but a few years in, people like Abdullah Azam, um, what what they start saying is that look, it's it's this pan-Islamist stuff is or this sort of solidarity thing is all well and good, but uh, it's just not enough. We have to fight as well. We have to. You know, Muslims around the world have to assist the Afghan people militarily, and so what? So what basically happens is a militarization of this uh, pan-Islamist uh, discourse, and that's what Azam does. He militarizes this idea that all Muslims have a duty to help other Mus- Muslims in need. Um, but the point, the broader point, is that this pan-Islamist community probably would not have emerged without this political exclusion that you get in the 50s, 60s, and 70s across the the, the, the Middle East. So, in, in the, you know, in the, you know, to put it very simply, this ha- this internationalization happens because the you know the regimes in the Middle East never really found a way to deal with political Islam, to integrate political Islam into the, the local political system. So the, so the, the you, 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 and this produces this sort of transnational uh, movement. I'm someone that's very interested in, in narratives and how narratives mobilize individuals. So I'd love for you to discuss some of the narratives that Azam used in the mobilization of the Mujahideen. Right. Well, he basically used a kind of a, a kind of a, a, a macro narrative that the, the, that the pan-Islamists were, had already constructed, which is that of the the Ummah under siege, the, of of um, a Muslim nation, uh, which is systematically uh, uh, kind of oppressed by non-muslim forces um, and so it's a it's a victim narrative which kind of takes uh, examples from around the world uh, anecdotal examples of muslim suffering from different parts of the world kind of sews it together to construct a picture um, which in which um, you know, m- m- Muslims are are kind of s- suffering this kind of co- almost coordinated international conspiracy, um, and uh, basically Azam just takes you know takes this same uh, victim narrative and, and elaborates on it, um, focusing perhaps more on the wars and is, is citing all these you know places around the the, the world where. Um, where there is where Muslims are in at, at war with non-Muslims, and of course Afghanistan is the main one, and Palestine. Uh, sorry, Palestine is the main one for him, and Afghanistan is sort of number two. But he, he lists a whole whole number of other places. So, and he and he um, he also he, he, he then kind of um, presents. Um, uh, listeners with a kind of a future or kind of a hope, uh, because he, he, what he says is, uh, is basically that you know if we all just wage jihad, we are going to win in all these places. We are going to liberate the occupied territories, uh, and, and we're going to come out victorious. So it's a it's sort of a 
it's a, you know it's a classic sort of uh, mobilization narrative when you where you have a um, kind of a diagnosis of what you know what's wrong in the world um, and of a uh, you know a prognosis you know in, in the answer what should we do which is you know wage jihad and then specifies this by showing by saying you know we're going to win these wars in these different places and we're going to come out victorious and we're going to establish an Islamic caliphate etc so that's sort of the the the, the macro narrative that he that he tells his uh, recruits in the, in the 1980s uh, there are, he's, he tells them other things too uh, the, um, so Azam is kind of ideologically, ideologically speaking, Azam made kind of two big contributions. One was to articulate this sort of foreign fighter doctrine, which is, uh, you know, which is that you know people should people have a duty to go and fight as foreign fighters. But the other contribution was uh, um, to kind of ha- highlight the, the the benefits of martyrdom, uh, and in that. Kind of part of his intellectual production, he, he, you know, he uses you know other types of narratives that are kind of more you know on the micro level, on the on the individual level, um, and it is you know a combination of basically stories um, that he claims you know have happened on the battlefield. You know, he, he wrote uh, extensively about the so-called miracles that can happen in battle and miracles that befall the martyr when he dies that, you know, that, that, um, um, the, 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 mar- the martyr's body doesn't decompose the martyr's face always, you know, kind of, is, is, you know, is smiling even, you know, several hours or, or days after death. And, or sometimes there can be a beam of light coming out of the, uh, grave of a martyr and so on. Um, so he's presenting, you know, he's, he's adding this sort of, sort of supernatural dimension to 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 the to the act of martyrdom, and um, and he, he also adds, you know, all the sort of stories, many of which are kind of from scripture or tradition about the, the wonderful things that, that awaits the martyr in paradise. Um, and so, yeah, so, so he, he combines different types of, um, of, of, of narratives and, and, and stories to, to capture his, his, his audiences. And I should say that um, the, um, the, the whole, uh, all, all his writings about m- martyrs and miracles, um, we now take for granted because they're all over the, you know, the jihadi propaganda, but it wasn't then. It, act, it was actually quite original. He, he was he was the first, I would argue, for the first, um, at least, uh, uh, Sunni Arab jihadi to to write extensively about uh, miracles and, and and martyrdom. And um, so when he wrote this, it captured people's attention. It stood out. Um, you, you already had lots of magazines, Islamist magazines like Al Mujtama etc., that would report on you know, wars or and insurgencies around the Muslim world. Um, but it was all kind of more or less the same, you know, coverage. It was, you know, typically sort of a, a report about the things that were going on, the battles, you know, all the dead Muslims and the suffering Muslims and the torture and the hunger that they were suffering and um, and so on. Uh, and, you know, and kind of op-eds about, oh, we need to 
this, this is terrible, we need to do something, things like that. But then Azam comes along and and kind of talks about something quite different. He says, uh, yeah, we have this jihad over here. And listen, there are all these incredible things happening, uh, all these miracles with martyrs, but also on the battlefield people are throwing, you know, people can, are able to down, you know, the Soviet fighter planes with with pebbles, um, you know, uh, people see, you know, armies of white angels uh, taking part in battle, or they're getting warnings from animals, you know, right ahead of battle so that they can evade enemy attacks, things like that. So, and, uh, you know, this was new uh, at the time and uh, captured uh, people's imagination and I think was, a, was an important factor in fueling recruitment to the Afghan jihad. I mean, I could have a whole talk about all of the mythological and martyrdom beliefs. That could be a whole nother loop cast. Mm. So fascinating. Mm. Why don't we talk about Azam and Al-Qaeda and how his part, or Azam's part, should I say, uh, played into the whole Afghan Arabs, as well as how eventually Azam lost control of the movement in Afghanistan. Right. So, um, Azam's name is to many you know, closely linked with Al-Qaeda and Bin Laden and the whole jihadism thing. And m- many people think that he, has be- that he was the f- kind of a founder or co-founder of Al-Qaeda. Um, but that's not really the case. He, he was not. He was never a member of Al Qaeda. He was not a co-founder of it. Um, he uh, had a sort of a different project for Afghanistan. I mean, he he wanted lots of foreign fighters to come, but he wanted them to fight sort of semi-conventionally um, uh, on on the battlefield in Afghanistan against enemies in uniform. You know, and follow while following you know the Islamic laws of war, um, and he wanted them to fight under Afghan command. So basically, fight like insurgents uh, under Afghan control. Uh, and he, he he never advocated international terrorist attacks or suicide bombings uh, or or the things that uh, Al Qaeda and other you know, later jihadi groups became famous for. Um, but the, but the, the the reason why he's still in some in some way you know connected to the rise of Al Qaeda is that he brought them there. He brought he created the community in which from which Al Qaeda and other groups emerged, and um, the, the 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 reason. Uh, that um, this happened. There isn't the, that, that 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 this community that he brought together that that is kind of developed to something other than what he probably wanted. Is that he had created he himself had created a sort of an, an author, authority problem uh, by saying because when he told people to come and fight in Afghanistan, he basically said. It's an individual religious duty to wage jihad in Afghanistan. And people should just 
pack their bags and come to Afghanistan. They should not uh, listen to objections from anybody, not from their parents, not from their local imams, not from their local government, because uh, Islamic law was clear. And you know, if anyone is just tr- anyone's trying to stop them or obstruct them, it's you know, it's th- those are misinformed people. You know. Or, or perhaps even just the devil trying to, you know, derail <laughs> jihad. So he told people not to listen to anyone and just fight. The problem was that um, uh, that eventually some people stopped listening even to him. Um, and you had all these people coming to Afghanistan keen on fighting and, um, you know, with their, their own ideas about what should be done and so on and and while most people kind of obeyed uh, you know azam and kind of fought regularly as, as insurgents you know, others were more kind of unruly um and this is where this is how al qaeda emerged in my view basically what what happened was that um um th- there was a you know, there were there were some Arab, afghan arabs who who wanted more action, more kind of, you know, hardcore military experiences than Azam could offer through his organization, the, the Services Bureau. And by 1986, uh, these people, you know, and Osama bin Laden was the kind of the, the leader among them, decided to set up a, a separate training facility that would you know, offer more serious military training uh, and op- and fighting opportunities, and um, uh, and and and, as, and Bin Laden set up this camp uh, kind of independently. He was he, he was he informed Azam about it, and so Azam was aware that, that it was happening, but it was not Azam's project. And the thing about this camp is that it's, you know it's sort of itself. It attracted all the kind of the most uh, military-minded, the most kind of um, uh, the, the the most perhaps the most hardline Afghan Arabs all into one camp, and also the the, the just the, the the practical the practicality of running the camp you know forced them to sort of organize a little bit. And it was from the from the sort of bureaucracy of running this early sort of Bin Laden camp that um, Al Qaeda emerged, and we, we, we can see that sort of the early, the, the early members of Al Qaeda were all trainers in this camp, which was called Al Masada. Uh, they were all tra- trainers in this early sort of uh, breakout camp from eighty six eighty seven. So um, and and and. This was something that Azam could not stop, um, and uh, because the Bin Laden and, and and the men around him didn't, um, you know, they, they thought that what they were doing was perfectly legitimate, and that they, you know, if they didn't want to fight under Afghan command all the time, that was fine, um, and so on. And this was just the beginning of a much bigger process of kind of. Factionalization and radicalization of the jihadi movement. Later on, uh, the movement would, would break up into many more parts, and you would get even more radical groups um, 
especially after Azam himself died in 1989, because Azam was still, you know, these kind of disputes in the 80s, notwithstanding, he he was still commanded quite a bit of authority. But when he when he died, there was no one left to kind of tame the Afghan Arabs. They they became leaderless, rudderless, and the groups went off in many different directions. And some of the groups just, you know. Um, ended up doing, you know, you know, going down into a, a deep hole of violent excess. You had, you know, the GIA in Algeria with the massacres there. You have Al Qaeda with the 9/11 attacks, and later on, of course, you have Islamic State. Um, so, but, but I see that whole kind of radicalization process as basically coming out of this authority problem that Azam um, created. And I think since we started with your story, your personal story about the jacket that Azam died in, why don't we talk about Azam's death, what actually happened? It's sort of almost the greatest history, or sorry, the greatest mystery, not history, (laughs) um, in jihadist history of this question of who killed Azam, which I know we don't really know, but take us through the details of what happened. Sure. So this is I mean, I call this the the John F. Kennedy assassination of Islamism, in that it's equal in impact and sort of fame within the movement as uh, the Kennedy assassination is in American politics. Also, um, it's you know it's, it was never you know solved, and it's created you know a, a huge amount of speculation and conspiracy theories around it. Um, the, the 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 kind of the the, the basic you know, but basically what happened was that um, Azam was on his way to deliver the sermon for Friday prayer on Friday twenty fourth of November nineteen eighty nine and uh, he, so he was on his way to deliver the Friday sermon at the so called Arab Mosque in Peshawar where most of the Afghan Arabs prayed, and um, um, and this was something he did regularly. Um, and but on this particular day, when he comes, uh, when he drives, he's in, he is in his car, and when he comes close to the mosque and is about to pull off into the little parking lot, a big bomb detonates under his car and kills him and his two sons who are riding with him. And, and this happens and because it's Friday prayer, um, and, and the zombie is sort of the VIP. You know, there, there, there's this huge crowd gathered in front of the mosque, you know, witnessing the whole thing. So it's a spectacle. You know, you know same thing with you know the John F. Kennedy assassination. He's, he's assassinated, you know, during a parade, you know, with lots of people watching. So. Um, 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 and then he, he more or less he, he dies within a few hours. Um, and uh, is laid to rest uh, the same evening uh, outside the shower. Um, now, who did it? Um, the it was the 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 murder was apparently um, investigated. The Pakistanis, you know, there was talk of, of an investigation, but it was shelved fairly early, within a year, and the the, the details were never published, and the, the Pakistani police never found. 
um, the perpetrator. And so um, everybody's been kind of left to speculate. Um, and at least, you know, 10 different perpetrators have been proposed. Everyone from kind of, from Osama bin Laden um, via uh, Ayman al-Dawahiri, the, the Egyptian current leader of al-Qaeda, um, via Western intelligence services, the CIA, or you know, or Mos- the Mossad, or Jordanian intelligence, Saudi intelligence, or Soviet intelligence, or Afghan intelligence, or Pakistani intelligence, or or someone in the Afghan theater, someone like Hekmatyar. Um, lots of people have been um, kind of suspected of this, and. As a test, as a good illustration of the extent of the confusion, um, when I asked members of Azam's family about this, I got different answers from different members of his family. So his, you know, his son, his mother, and his son-in-law have different kind of top candidates for who killed him. So um, uh, this is a very murky, murky story. And I don't in the in the book, I I don't reach a conclusion either, uh, unfortunately, but I, 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 I say that um, the Pakistani um, intelligence services, the ISI, are kind of my, are highest on my, my list because they had, they certainly had the, ca- the capability, they had been doing similar operations in Afghanistan uh, for a long time during the war. Um, and they were operating on home turf, so they wouldn't have to worry much about kind of operational security. And they had motivation in that Pakistanis had never been particularly happy with um, the Afghan Arab presence in Pakistan. And um, also in the late 80s, Azam and other Arabs had started criticizing the Pakistani government notably for its signing of the Geneva Accords in 88, which um, partly which involved basically the kind of the eviction of foreign elements like the, like the Arabs um, and, and involved also kind of a blockade of, kind of arms and, and supplies to the Afghan Mujahideen from the Pakistani side, things like that. So Azam and others have been criticizing the Pakistanis. Um, and also, Azam had been meddling in Afghan politics by trying to mediate a some ceasefire or a brilliant alliance between Hekmatyar and Masood, the two strongest men in the, among the Afghan Mujahideen, uh, which the Pakistanis probably didn't like because you know they wanted the Afghan Mujahideen to be relatively weak, weak enough to be manipulated. Um, and they had put all their money and kind of political assets in supporting Hekmatyar. Um, so, for all these reasons, I think you know, that, you know, it's conceivable that they they might have wanted to do something like that. You know, to me, it also fits with the kind of the the, the choice of time and place because it's you know there were if you wanted you know let's say you know if, if it was you know Ayman al-Dawahiri or you know, the, the so-called Egyptian faction in among the Afghan Arabs who wanted to do this, why would they do it? Um, uh, why would they want to make a spectacle out of it uh, if they just wanted him dead? Um, they could have 
Yeah, and it was if someone wanted him, just wanted him dead, they could liquidate him in any number of quieter ways. And drive by shooting someone on an empty road or something. Um, whoever did this wanted to send a signal to, to the Afghan Arab community. Um, um, also, I think the operation was fairly sophisticated from an operational standpoint, so that points to a government actor in, in, in my view. Now, it could have been some other government, but I, I'm... I'm um, I, I'm my, my main suspect is uh, is the Pakistani intelligence, but I I don't have any tangible you know proof uh, of this, so it's all circumstantial, and we we'll probably never know I think until uh, and unless something you know some part some evidence is kind of declassified and you know, some news sources are declassified or uh, kind of a crucial witness decides to uh, come out and, and tell all uh, until then. We will we'll just be guessing. We have a couple of questions that listeners have sent in, and one of them I think is a really great question, and that is we know the importance of Azam to the jihadist movement, but in your opinion, do you think he was indispensable to the rise of global jihad, and if so, how? Um, well, I guess that depends in part how what we mean by global jihad. If if we mean by that there are groups engaging in transna in international terrorism, like you know attacking America and or European cities and so on, um, then um, uh, or, or or do we mean the, the kind of the more the, the more broader phenomenon of kind of transnational activism, which also would include kind of just foreign fighting, you know, going to conflict zones and fighting as insurgents there. Um, I think Azam. I think Azam was probably not indispensable to either of these two two phenomena, although he. Um, he amplified this, or he increased the size of the of the, of the foreign fighter community. Without Azam, the Arab Afghans probably it, it probably would have been a phenomenon, but it would have been much smaller um, because uh, we know from the biographies of the people who joined the Afghan Jihad that uh, no individual or, or no yeah or that, that no individual is more frequently found as an inspiration for going to Afghanistan so it was you know Azam's books was the main ideological inspiration for for the Afghan Arabs and we know that the the organization that Azam created the services bureau um, is the one that most Afghan Arabs uh, passed through, uh, at least for most of the 1980s. So at the end, is a little bit more different, but uh, for most of the 80s, that's that was the, the the main gate to to the Afghan jihad, and you know, that organization wouldn't have probably existed without Afghan without Azam. So Azam is central just to the the, the kind of the the. The, the mobilization work for of the Afghan Arabs, and you take him away, um, 
it would just would have been smaller, I think. You could, you could, of course, argue that, well, if he hadn't done it, someone else would. But the thing is, if you look around the kind of the, the scene, the Afghan-Arab scene at the time, there was really nobody with anything near the same uh, kind of set of skills and connections. So Azam, Azam, for a long time, was the only trained religious cleric among the Afghan Arabs. Um, and as a senior Muslim brother, he had connections that he could use for recruitment that almost nobody else had. So, you know, take him away. Someone else might have tried to set up a, a services bureau uh, and or to write books calling for foreign fighters. But they just, I think they just would have been less impactful it would have gotten less of a following so uh, he's not in it wasn't indispensable i think these things would have developed uh anyway but the, it would have been smaller and so and then the question is you know with a much smaller afghan arab community could you then have had uh, kind of a an international terrorist component to the Jali movement? Could you, could you have had an Al-Qaeda? Conceivably. Um, but, but, but now we're so, so far down the causal chain that it becomes, I think, <laughs> a little bit uncertain to speculate. But um, um, he certainly was, as far as individuals go, I mean, he, he, you know, no, no, obviously, you know, it's very rare to, you know, to have individuals you know who truly and really deeply shape shape history um unless they're kind of leaders of big states that, that start wars and things but as far as as far as individuals go especially in this movement he is certainly one of the uh one of the most um, influential i have another question that's fairly specific, and a listener that has read your book was wondering if you found any ties to Mullah Kirka, the former Ansar al-Islam leader, with Azam, since apparently this former leader mentions connections with Azam. I'm sure there are many people that want to associate themselves with Azam, considering his important status for the global jihadist movement, so to speak. Yeah, so Mullah Krakar is this. Uh, for the listeners who don't know, Mullah Krakar is a, is the is, is an Iraqi Kurd um, who, for many years, led uh, um, uh, an Islamist militia in Kurdistan, and uh, then after nine eleven, he got caught up in a kind of a, a web of accusations and trials um, and. And and uh, and has spent most of the past fifteen years in in and out of prison in in Norway actually where where which is which was his his base he he he, he formerly kind of he came to to Norway as a as a as an asylum seeker in the early mid nineties but it, throughout the nineties up until two thousand two I think he was he was going back and forth from Norway to Kurdistan to lead his militia. Um, he had, he, but his sort of his sort of you know place of residence was was Oslo, and, and uh, so it, it was in in the Norwegian legal system that he got caught up. And anyway, um, yes, he he met 
uh, Abdel Azam, Murakar uh, traveled to Peshawar uh, in the late 80s, uh, as did Islamists from all over the world. M- many people came there to sort of inspect the Afghan jihad, to see what it was like, and many came to see Azam, who by then was very famous. And um, Murakar writes about this in his memoirs uh, that were published in the early 2000s. So I, I'm, I was well aware of this connection. I don't mention it in the book because he's just one of many people with stories like that, and and um, the book was very long as it was. So um, um, I could have written. I mean, there were so so many Afghan Arabs, and there's so many kind of stories. I could have written sort of you know a chapter, a long chapter, almost on every, on every, on each country and the, and on the on the contingent from each country. Um, and its experiences in Afghanistan, but it would have there was just wasn't space for that in, in, in the book. But his yeah, the Mullah Krekar story is kind of symptomatic of this kind of pilgrimage function that Peshawar served in the late eighties. Um, uh, it was where kind of the that's that was where the kind of the the, the, the best and the biggest jihad was taking place, and, and you know, a lot of people were interested to see what that looked like. It, it included, um, by the way, almost all of the kind of senior Muslim Brotherhood figures in the region, in the, in the, in the Middle East at the time, including people that subsequently uh, have been seen as kind of more moderate or progressive, people like Rashid Al-Ghanoushi, the Tunisian Islamist and current speaker of the Tunisian parliament, who in the ni- from the 90s, 90s onwards kind of um, has become the kind of the, the 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 progressive face of the Muslim Brotherhood, but he was a good friend of Azam, and he travelled to Peshawar to to see to to see the Afghan Jihad um, in eighty eight and eighty nine. So um, the the, the Mullah Krikar story is is one of of, of many such stories. And then one more question, which I think also ties into my final question for you, is. What do you think it will take for the current or, fu- or for current or future conflicts to attract the kind of foreign fighters that we've seen going to Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan? Do you think we will potentially see something like that in the future? And what will be the elements that will fuel that? Um, it's. I think it's. And maybe I don't need to say that it's difficult to predict, but I'm, um, I say it anyway because uh, um, the, the the conflicts um, that have attracted foreign fighters are quite different, uh, and, and uh, it's not always obvious, sort of, whether there's anything, you know, any aspect of the conflicts themselves that is attracting large numbers or, or if, if it's something else and it's I think it's basically a, a, you need to have a particular, a particular kind of constellation of factors for the, the contingent for the for, for the foreign fighter mobilization to become big but I think but the, the big the, I think the single biggest variable for you know, basically determining the size of the, the foreign fighter contingent is state support so um, the two big uh, uh, foreign fighter destinations in sort of the history of jihadism are 
Afghanistan in the 80s and Syria in the uh, 2010s. And they both had that in common that that um, the side of the conflict which the foreign fighter joined enjoyed uh, widespread support, international support and state support from uh, around the world. So in the 80s, many countries um, and um, and publics supported the Afghan Mujahideen. And so when Azam and other Afghan Arabs traveled to fight on the side of the Afghan Mujahideen, people t- thought it wasn't a big deal because it's a good cause that they're fighting for. And so many people were, you know, able to go because obstructions were not put in their in their way. And the same thing happened in the early 2010s with Syria. So many people thought that, you know, the Syrian rebellion, rebellion is good, it's legitimate, uh, they're fighting a dictator. So, you know, to have people traveling from around the world um, to help the Syrian rebels can't be so bad because, you know, the Syrian rebels are good. I'm, I'm simplifying, of course, but, but that's sort of the, the dynamic that, that, you know, certain conflicts are perceived as more legitimate in, uh, than others, and it has implications for how governments treat war volunteers and kind of travelers and adventurers to those conflict zones. And it's, it is when, it's, it's when the rebellion is popular and that states don't stop foreign fighters from joining uh, it that um, you get big foreign fighter uh, mobilizations. Um, so for something similar to happen in the future, and by the way, I don't think anything similar to the Syria war will happen in the future because the experience of the Syria war and the experience of Islamic State will have taught the international community a lesson. And, and we now know the dangers of uh, um, you know, unchecked foreign fighter traveling. So the next time a conflict like that erupts, governments will put a lot more uh, effort into stopping people from, from going there. Um, but, um, but, but, you know, it's conceivable that, that you know, there, there, will, there might emerge wars or, or rebellion or insurgencies where you know, even that, where that might become difficult, where we, we sympathize so much with the, with the re- 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 rebel side, um, that that we again will um, kind of um, not work as hard to prevent foreign fighting as as we would in other other places. Um, um, I don't know where that could. I hesitate to speculate about specific scenarios, but but um, that's the general type of situation that uh, we should be kind of. Um, where we should be um, on on the lookout for for foreign fighters, and where we should bear the historical experiences of the Afghan jihad and of the Syrian war in mind. So, to conclude the talk, my question for you is: Considering Azam's life and story. What can we learn from the past that we can apply to the future of the global jihadist movement? Right. Um, it's a very difficult question. Um, 
It is. I, it's a big question. I, Apologies. Because it's um, um, my book is uh, more sort of, sort of a classical kind of history book, more than something that's geared towards generating kind of policy uh, applications. But I, I guess I would say two things. One is what I touched upon earlier, which is that um, um, we should be uh, wary of of kind of foreign fighters, of kind of private war volunteering, even uh, when the cause they are joining seems legitimate. So even when we, so when people are traveling as war volunteers to conflict zone, uh, that's usually a bad thing, even if we like the rebel side that they're joining. Um, I think foreign fighting, you know, in general is a destabilizing phenomenon because it undermines the state monopoly, the state's monopoly on violence. And I think it's, you know, if, for example, if we, if we, if we like the rebels in a, in a conflict so much that, you know, we're happy to see, you know, it get external support. Well, then we should send soldiers there, or we should su- support those rebels in a, you know, within a state framework. You know, that will, um, you know, preserve the state's monopoly on, on, on force and, and ensure that, um, and I think more, ensure more more stability as a rule. Um, uh, so, uh, so that's one. Um, just generally uh, prevent foreign fighting. And um, um, the other, I guess, has to do with this issue of authority that I mentioned earlier, that that, um, I think much of the extremism we see in the Dehonding movement today is at heart an authority problem, uh, in that you have a substantial kind of minority of young Muslim activists who have simply stopped listening to uh, religious clerics or to mainstream religious clerics and who have kind of taken scripture into their own hands um, and using it to to wage war. And um, uh, so many people in the the West often say that... um, well, Muslim clerics or you know, Muslim publics should do more to kind of condemn jihadism or so on. But that's really not. That's kind of missing the point. The problem is not the lack of kind of mainstream clerical condemnation of jihadism. I mean, that's being. I mean, there's there's plenty of that. I mean, there are hundreds of hundreds of fatwas by mainstream clerics condemning terrorism and, and jihadism. But um, the problem is that you have a whole group of people that has just stopped listening to these clerics. Um, and so what needs to happen in part, I mean, what needs to happen is, is, is for authority to kind of be reestablished for, 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 you know, this, this group of people who, you know, who don't listen to authority for that group to become smaller and for basically Islamic clergy to command more, uh, more authority, and I think, and 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 you know, 
that's obviously uh, much easier easier said said than done. Um, I don't have any specific uh, you know, suggestions for how to achieve that, but I think in general, you know, governments, Muslim governments, and you know, sh- should you know, and they probably are, you know, think creatively about this, and Western governments should support. Uh, uh, initiatives that that, that might uh, you know help uh, re, 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 you know kind of uh, yeah re- reestablish authority uh, in in the in the Muslim world so that so that and these kind of you know very unorthodox uh, um, interpretations and in the and the, the and the groups espousing them um, become smaller. So yeah, those those two takeaways. I think those sort of the, the, the foreign fighters, you know, avoid foreign fighters when you can, and and um, you know, re- you know, do what we can to reestablish authority in the Muslim world, uh, religious religious authority in the Muslim world, um, would be the main ones. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on the Loopcast, Thomas, and for our listeners. Please pick up the book. It is amazing. There is so much detail in it. And once again, thank you so much for spending years of your life doing this research and producing such an amazing piece of work that definitely will go down in history. Thank you so much, Chelsea, and thanks for having me on.